So welcome to um, the Comparative Media Studies Colloquium. And um, it's my honor and privilege not to localize this event in time and place, but to actually talk about our speaker. And uh, Jesse Shapens is with us tonight. He's a media theorist, documentary artist, and social entrepreneur. Um, we know him best for his work with Ziga. The, he's the uh, co-founder and chief strategy architect of Ziga. And he's also the co-founder and associate director of the Meta Lab, the Hyperstudio's counterpart over at Harvard. Uh, he is on the faculty of architecture at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. And he's teaching some wonderful courses. If you go to the website, um, his courses look terrific on the mixed reality city and media archaeology of place. We share tons, it turns out, tons of not only interests, but also like spatial coordinates in the past. Um, and I think what's really important about this work, it, 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 this particular colloquium falls during a week where we've been doing a lot of, uh, we've been paying a lot of attention to new forms of documentation. Uh, where things like the interactivity of games enter in, where performative cartography issues are part of it. Uh, and one of the underlying themes is that this stuff is not so much about the technology as about practices that have been deeply embedded in our culture that are being newly articulated with the technology. So that little dance of trying to think about the way the past informs the present and the technologies enabled in, in, in robust ways, uh, these kind of practices, that's kind of the space that Jesse's going to talk about. So welcome. Great. Well, thank you so much, William. It's an honor to be here. Um, it's actually very intimidating to give a talk like this with some of the people in the room, especially yourself. Um, but in particular, what I wanted to do today, because I, I know, you know, I gave a talk at the um, Center for Civic Media last fall, a lunch talk on Ziga and Mapping Main Street and some previous projects. Um, and what I wanted to do today was actually really try and experiment and to share a lot of the kind of historical and theoretical research I've been doing over the past five to seven years uh, in the context of working on these projects. So there'll be sort of an interweaving of the history theory, um, which I will primarily be reading. I usually never read. It always kind of terrifies me to read, but I couldn't quite take myself away. This is the first time I presented this material. I kind of wanted to have it there in front of me. So bear with me as I do some of that reading um, in between the projects. But just to, to give a little taste, um, I thought it might be fun to share. This is actually the first kind of media art project that I worked on. Um, it's called Textures of Time and Place. Um, and in general, I think the work that I've done in the, has really been interested in the relationship of the senses of the city, the way in which media can record and document and approximate human experience, but in many ways provides a radically different experience than when you are physically present at a location. Um, so this is just a visual signifier. Um, so let's dive in. Recently, I've been working to theorize the urban database documentary, a mode of media art practice that uses structural systems as generative processes and organizational frameworks to explore the lived experience of place. While particularly prominent in recent decades, you know, we can think about the web and such, I argue that the genre of the urban database documentary emerges in the early 20th century as a response to new cultural concerns created by the widespread adoption of new media recording and distribution technologies of that time, so film, radio, the recent invention of photography, mass urbanization, and an information-based society. And as such, I argue that the urban database documentary can be read as symptomatic of panoramic perception, sensory estrangement, and networked participation, what I'm calling cultural utopias that are responding to modernity's underlying paradoxes, sort of paradoxical utopias. And central to this argument is represented in this image right here, which is that 
I argue that the invention of the computer fundamentally did not give rise to the urban database documentary. It only enabled new forms of its realization. And in particular, I think this perspective is really important today um, as we grapple with continued media, urban, and social transformation. And really what's implied in this method is that there are not any radical ruptures that distinguish modernity from postmodernity or other notions of periodicity. Cultural practice, I argue, albeit in ways always new and historically contingent, continues to grapple fundamentally with the consequences of modernization and modernity which emerged in the 19th century. And so my hope today here and in the work that I do is to shift the conversation from a fetishization of ever new technological possibilities to a discussion of the underlying cultural aims and assumptions of media art practice and the specific forms through which works address modernity's cultural tensions. So a little bit more on definitions and words. So urban, so we have this kind of neologism that I've made up, the urban database documentary. So urban, I choose this to delimit the genre to works that engage questions of the experience of place in the production of space. So while cities are often central subjects, the genre encompasses works that focus upon other geographic parameters, such as small towns, infrastructural networks, and other forms of human modification of the landscape. This geographic focus, I think, is crucial to this specific genre as it distinguishes it from other forms of database-driven practices that do not make place a central subject of inquiry or organizing principle. So just basically, I'm passionate about place, and I think there's a specific genre that is tied to that notion. Database, it's also a little odd and uncomfortable for somebody that's not a technologist to talk about databases at MIT, but I will do that regardless. Um, a database basically is, I again don't have to tell you, is, is a structured collection of information. Um, in my definition though, a database might be an encyclopedia, so Britannica or Wikipedia. It might be an atlas, so say Abby Varberg's atlas, or Google Maps or an ordered set of information, either a 19th century census or Facebook. And I would say that a database is distinguished from other modes of organizing information by its relative flattening of hierarchies, the ease by which it can be searched, and that its contents can be reshuffled without losing coherence. While necessarily technical on a certain level, more, more importantly, the database quality of the genre, so this mode of media art practice here in question, can be read first and foremost in the method of the artist. And this is really kind of at the center of, of what I'm trying to argue. And it's that a database is a structural system and it's a conceptual architecture. And in the projects that I discuss, the construction of a database or this, this architecture becomes the generative logic of the work itself. So it's a real kind of creative process. It's not just simply that there's organized information, it's that there's an intentional design process around what that structure is and how that might give rise to work in the project. So, for example, in the case of many 1920s films known as City Symphonies, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit, the structural logic of temporality, for example, you know, morning to night, drives the collection of documentary artifacts and it produces the final form of the work. That structure is, in effect, generative. In the case of a book like The Arcades Project, the structural logic of the database is the cross-reference collection of quotations. And similarly, the dictionary framework is the generative and organizational vehicle for structuring all the images, texts, videos, and other media within the Graphic Dictionary of Mexico City, another project which I'll discuss in more detail. So 
What I would say is that the defining characteristics remain the same in the context of works that are created with technical databases after the invention of computers. What I just described was a series of projects that did not, in many ways, not in many ways, fundamentally, many projects that did not involve computers, very simply. And so, to state again, to qualify for the genre, the data structure and attendant algorithms must be authored and designed by the artist. In other words, an artist must consciously participate in shaping the parameters of a work for the work to qualify for the genre. A standard digital archive of artifacts, while a database does not qualify, nor does Wikipedia, Google Maps, or Facebook alone, an artistic intervention that reframes the archival repository or these other evolving databases is necessary. Um, and we can, I mean, this, like I said, I usually don't read. It's kind of like, if there are questions along the way, and this is a small, small group, you know, you feel free to jump up and scream at me and ask something. Um, documentary, this is the last of the, the words in the urban database documentary. So the way I like to think about it is that documentary does not signify a single medium. Again, that's probably not news to people in this room, but you know, if you go out there in the world, a lot of people, you say the word documentary, they're gonna say, that's a film. I, I find that fundamentally to not be a very useful definition of the term. Instead, I would argue that documentary denotes an approach to artistic practice that explicitly negotiates a dialectic between reality and its representation, and that this negotiation is made tangible in the aesthetic form of the work itself. So this definition is in part derived from Frederick Jameson's writings on realism. In existence in Italy, which is in this collection, Signatures of the Visible, he describes realism as, quote, a peculiarly unstable concept owing to its simultaneous yet incompatible aesthetic and epistemological claims. So for Jameson, if a work's objective truth claims are entirely validated, it ceases to contain an aesthetic dimension. And yet any foregrounding of aesthetics necessarily exposes the subjectivity of any truth claims. However, it is precisely, and this is a quote from, from from Jameson, this constitutive tension and incommensurability of epistemology and aesthetics, a constant process without resolution that gives realism its power and affect. And I argue that documentary is also defined by this irresolvable dialectic. So, panoramic perception, this first of these paradoxical utopias that I'm arguing. Um, the modern cities that emerged in the late 19th century were immense in scale relative to urban forms of the past. A result of industrialization and new modes of transport such as the railroad and automobile, Berlin, Paris, London, Chicago, New York, and others exploded during this time with millions of new migrants from the countryside flooding rapidly growing urban centers. These changes were not only geographic or demographic but also deeply cultural, inducing new forms of individual and collective perception. Stephen Marcus writes in The Victorian City, one of the chief components of the distress commonly felt by many people in modern cities is their sense that the city is unintelligible and illegible. So in the midst of this dramatic expansion horizontally and vertically, the modern city spawned feelings of significant disorientation. The contemporary city is, has a similar effect, I would say. It was not perceived as a coherent system of signs, as an environment communicating in a language that was known. So I'd say it's actually precisely at this moment when the rapidly fragmenting nature of the modern metropolis became evident 
that the urban database documentary emerged as a response. This is the, the kind of part of my argument that is that it's a symptomatic uh, response to the underlying tensions in modernity itself. It emerges as a response, as a means of attempting to build coherence. Even if it is understood that this representational coherence was only illusory, the attempt to sustain and build this illusion was, and is, I would say, an essential quality of modern urban aesthetics and experience. While as a society, we acknowledge the impossibility of a singular comprehensive view, we continue to invent new forms of urban panoramas that strive to overcome feelings of disorientation through new forms of comprehensive representation. So I choose the term panoramic perception to describe this paradoxical utopia. So this utopian impulse was active in the early 20th century during the emergence of the panorama films and actualities, and it remains evident in late modernity. You know, I'm gonna skip this section. I can tell I'm already talking too much. This is nice, but it kind of just says the same thing. You know, um, I don't need a Bruno Latour quote, it's fine. Um, so we're gonna skip. Um, well, I'll have a Bruno Latour quote, just less of it. So <laughs> despite exposing its ingrained fictions, I would say that, you know, it really is about creating new panoramas um, and that there's nothing wrong with this. It's actually a good thing. So while be, despite being aware of its impossibility, Latour acknowledges that the process of pursuing the panorama remains essential. Without striving for the panorama, we become entirely lost in the field of the micro-narrative, the fragment, the local, without any vision of a larger sense of networked interrelation and wholeness. So the City Symphony films, how many of you guys know about City Symphonies? It's fewer than I anticipated. <laughs> um, so there's, there's different definitions, but this is sort of a body of, uh, a body of work. Uh, primarily, it's identified as a body of work from the, so the teens through the 30s of avant-garde films, um, primarily in Europe, but also in the United States, um, that experiment with kind of combining different ways of looking at the city. And the, some of the dominant modes is sort of using montage editing um, and having a structure of, of sort of morning till night. So this is Moscow. Um, and what we saw at the very beginning was the word, the day begins. Um, and these are films that grow out of a history of kind of observational documentary practices, actualities, panoramic films, um, and sort of take it to another level as sort of full-length feature works. Um, and I would argue that the City Symphony is a typology which addresses the emergent desire at the turn of the 20th century to render the massive new industrial metropolises of the West legible in their totality. It's not coincidental, I think, that many of them especially the most sort of famous, have the name of a city. Like what we saw earlier when I was talking about panoramic perception was the film Berlin Symphony of a Great City. So the name, the most sort of basic name of the film is Berlin. It's talking about the city as a whole. It's attempting to capture that totality. Um, a later example that uses interactive media is ABCDF, a graphic dictionary of Mexico City. And this is a, a 2001 book, CD-ROM, and public exhibition that uses the structural logic of the dictionary to transform the perception of Mexico City as a whole. So this is just a little screen capture of this work, but it's very much in this model of sort of trying to grasp the city and in its totality. It's recognizing all of the sort of individual parts, but it's very much about the sort of city as a whole. Again, its title has the name of the city very prominently defined. And then, a later example, and I think this is sort of interesting in thinking about sort of this, this, this utopia of, of panoramic perception. So as mediation of urban experience sediments over the decades, 
So the recordings of a city's representation now become available as reusable media themselves. So we did already have sort of found footage filmmaking in the, in the sort of 20s and 30s. Um, but understandably, the ability to use found footage was somewhat limited by the amount of footage that had been recorded. At a point like 2004, let alone today, 2012, the amount of material, the actual sort of media that exists as possible material is radically different. And the media that represents cities is fundamentally uh, at a different scale. And so we see many more works that actually fundamentally reuse and, and interpret this material to look into the urban imaginary of place. So I would say this sort of transformation is exemplified in Tom Anderson's 2003 film, Los Angeles Plays Itself, what he calls, quote unquote, a city symphony in reverse. So while early city symphony films were characterized by footage shot on location, documentary material generated from the flux of the physical city itself, Anderson's film is composed of fragments from other films, primarily quote unquote fiction films, that are read against the grain to bring the implicit visions of the city's geography and history from the background into the foreground. And so I would say that his film is paradigmatic of the transformation of the genre of the urban database documentary. So I just want to play a little segment of this for you all. It's a, it's a tremendous film if any of you have not had a chance to see it. So now, you know, so what I'd like to do, and that was a you know, fairly rapid traversal of the 20th century and a little bit of the century itself. But um, what I'd like to do is actually jump into a, two projects then that I've developed over the last 10 years that start to, in a sense, I feel like have also been very fundamental myself in helping to think through these topics. Um, and that's in general, I think, one of the you know, challenges, opportunities, just sort of peculiarities in my own life. I'm somebody that's been living both as an academic, doing historical theoretical research, but very much as a practicing media artist. And this interrelationship, the ways in which the making fundamentally informs the thinking and the theorizing and vice versa, it's something that I'm always working through. Um, so Stadtblind. This is, I moved to Berlin in 2002 and became interested in the representation of the city as a whole. I had seen this project, ABC DFA, the graphic dictionary in Mexico City that I showed you, and was really fascinated by this sort of aesthetic strategy for thinking creatively about how you retain individuality while still approaching the collective representation of a city. Um, so with two um, colleagues, an architect and an urban planner, I started this, this arts group called Stadtblind, or City Blind. And I have, a, I have a physical artifact to share. You can travel around the room. Um, so in German, or in English, excuse me, um, in English, Stadtblind means city blind. 
And this name was derived from starting the group with this one phrase, too often Berlin is seen blindly, which is, of course, in a way, you know, a paradox. How can one see if one is blind? And the whole point was fundamentally to really put perception, the perception of the city as a whole and its individual parts at the center of our practice. And in particular, we were interested in this notion of urban imaginaries, sort of the city that is constituated through the representation through media, um, the way in which sort of the media representation of the city itself takes on a life. And in particular, we identified two dominant imaginaries or narratives for the city at this time. So Berlin is construction site and Berlin is historical landscape. So the construction site side, I'm sure all of you are well aware that the Berlin Wall came down in 1989. The city was suddenly a radical kind of canvas for reinterpreting itself and its future. Um, and this was of course, an incredibly interesting subject. And you had full-length feature documentaries, Berlin Babylon, for example, that simply recorded cranes in the construction of new buildings. And another major dominant narrative was Berlin as historical landscape. So as this sort of shifting character of the city took place, there was an incredible fascination with, you know, where was the wall? Where was it going? What parts were, would be kept? Which marks, you know, represent which moment in this city's tumultuous history? And that's honestly what attracted me to the city. It's a city that bears its history in ways that are, it's far more exposed and engaging in narrative than any place I've ever been. Um, but despite these two dominant narratives, and I mean, these make a ton of sense. Like, I personally was completely fascinated by these two things. They're incredibly interesting subjects. What we felt like was that there was a real lack of attention to actually kind of the everyday qualities of the city. What did it mean to live in places that weren't being radically rebuilt? What did it mean to live in places that had historical history, of course, but they were not right next to the wall? And so we opened up a gallery um, in the neighborhood of Vetting, which is, as you can see, right above Mitte. It's actually in the center of the city, effectively, but is a place that, by and large, is not widely discussed. It's not some place that gets a lot of attention. Um, and we sort of identified this as a blind spot, a blind spot in the city's representation and self-representation and reflection. And so we had a series of galleries and sort of this iterative process. Another thing that's been really crucial to my work is just sort of testing ideas in public, often through sort of storefront spaces. I recently started a, a storefront space here in Cambridge down the block called Square by Square. It's on Broadway. And it occurred to me that I basically, wherever I live, I kind of have to have a storefront space to try things out. Um, that started in Berlin, and I loved it. Um, and in that context, developed this project, The Colors of Berlin. Um, and the structure here, and this has been really interesting to think about um, in, in the process of developing these ideas around the urban database documentary and, and increased attention to the notion of the database itself as, a, as I said, sort of the structural logic, this, this design that can become generative. In effect, this project did not, this did not, I mean, it involved computers in the sense that I used a laptop to use Photoshop. But there's no, this is not a web-based project. There's no algorithms in the sense of a machine running an algorithm. Um, but I think this is a really, very much a database-driven work. It is a fundamental structure that we designed that became then the generative structure for the project as a whole. So this structure consisted of images. It consisted of colors. It consisted of text. It consisted of maps. Consisted of themes. So these were the five components. If you think about actually designing a database schema, these would be the five um, columns. And so these images were primarily things that people would never commonly notice in the city. So this, you know, how many of you have been to Berlin? Okay. 
similar people that have heard of the city symphonies. But <laughs> um, probably your first image of the city was not a yellow garden hose. It's not the most you know, prominent image of the place. Um, but in many ways, and this was picked up by the, by the, by the Berlin media in, in sort of a playful way, it's actually very representative in certain senses. So Berlin's a city that has a population density similar to Los Angeles. There's many, many single family homes sort of inside the city's boundaries. Many people with yards, and many of those yards have garden hoses. Um, and so, and this was actually taken by one of the colleagues on the project who grew up in the city, and this, for him, was a really important part of his day-to-day -day life. So the images were images often of this nature, things that people would not normally understand to be Berlin, but tell a story of its uniqueness. Um, and then the colors serve as sort of this, this, this aesthetic device by which to recontextualize and change the perception then of these images. So this is another one, sort of the brown door and door handle. You know, for me, this is you know particularly poignant. I feel like that type of that type of wood, that specific type of handle and lock. I know, well, it's not necessarily just Berlin, but it's definitely not something you would see in the United States. Like I could see that detail, and I would know very quickly that is probably in Germany. It's definitely not in other places. Um, but just alone, you know, it's. Still, it's kind of a boring image. Um, and the idea was that these colors would really kind of be used as sort of seeing devices, strategies to kind of reframe these ordinary objects. Um, I just finished a thesis about Berlin, and so I'd been reading a lot, and I had all these quotations. And so I'd, and I was quite passionate about the idea, and this is in part also inspired by um, Benjamin's Arcades project, to kind of also combine text so that there is a power in the visual medium but there is also something particular in what can be drawn from textual artifacts. Um, and so each card, each entry into the project had a text. And this is just sort of a kind of goofy text from the popular newspaper, the Berliner Morgan Post. Um, and then maps. So um, in this case, the idea for the mapping was really, it would be important to give really specific geographies for two reasons. One, this could become a kind of playful city guide. <laughs> You know, you could, it would kind of push against the idea that you would just go to Postsummerplatz, you would go try to find the door handle, and you would try to find the garden hose. Um, so knowing exactly where that is is really important. Um, but also, it's to kind of play with notions of objectivity. Um, so the maps give this sense of scientific representation. That's sort of one of the presumptions that we build into our the ways that we look at maps. Um, but to so combine this form of mapping with something that is so clearly subjective, like these images so clearly have a subjective tone, and this is something that is carried through throughout my work, is really an interest in combining sort of notions of objectivity and subjectivity and bringing them into tension. And then the themes were basically like tags um, today or you know, in the context of the web, and these were sort of small ways of organizing topically cross-sections of the collection. So. Monsters, this was a, a category that we invented for these kind of fantastic, you know, like 50s to 70s era architectural objects in the city. Lighting, sitting, sex stuff, important in every city. Eating, that's, I need to change that slide, that's the worst translation, attachment. So these are, these are trailers. Um, and, so the process for developing this project was where myself and my colleagues just walked around the city for over a year, taking thousands and thousands of photographs. So this very kind of documentary sort of observational approach. Um, and in that, 
we started to see things that we didn't know ourselves notice before. And one of the things is that there's an inordinate number of things with wheels locked to, to surfaces in the city. There's just an incredible number of things like that one there in the middle. Um, and so this became a category. Vehicles, city furniture, facades, so some, some more architectural topics, and the ground. This was in many ways one of the most important topics for us. This is kind of classically something that is a part of our everyday lives, very much defining and distinct in the, wherever we are. For, you, know, it's, you know you're in Cambridge in part by the kind of unevenness of the brick sidewalks. It's very different than the bubble gum on the grounds in Manhattan. Um, but this is not something that we normally talk about or pay attention to. So to put these back together, sort of that database structure, this is one of my favorite images of this cat. Um, in part because it's pointing to, again, another aspect of mapping that is often not discussed, which is the notion that maps, people tend to think of maps as recording things that are permanent. Of course, nothing's actually permanent, but we tend to think of buildings as lasting longer than other things. Um, but I became, I've become particularly interested in mapping ephemerality, sort of those moments, like this cat in this window, and capturing that moment and ascribing that to an actual location. So really this conjoining of time and place. Um, so the output of this project, and this is also sort of a, a feature of database-driven work, is that there's many different possible outputs. Um, so there's effectively this project consisted of over 900 of these individual cards, like that are in this book that resulted, um, which I believe has 96 cards. But um, there's about 975 cards that were exhibited um, at the German Architecture Center. Um, in this sort of color carpet. And if we zoom in, what we see here is sort of the way in which I would say now within sort of the theoretical frame that I've been working on is sort of this, you know, it is very much a panoramic approach. You know, you have this sense of kind of this carpet of the city as a whole. Um, but it is at the same time radically fragmented. It's not actually putting together the city and trying to, to, to effectively represent it in the totality. It is playing with the desire, but it is also simultaneously undermining that. Um, any questions, thoughts? Yeah. A, fantastic, beautiful, <laughs> wonderful, I love it. Um, and B, I'm just curious, so the panoramic part is, is, is keeps, mm -hmm. what you just said sort of summed up my, what keeps grabbing at me, because I understand the panoramic, panoramic gesture has been encompassing, but the fragmentation is really evident. And so why not like a kaleidoscope or something that, that gets at that totality and fragmentation? Why, why panorama and not other, another kind of optical work or like kaleidoscope? Right. So, so, um, so as I further, so the, the next sort of piece, this other utopia that I describe is, the, is sensory estrangement, which is almost sort of the other end of this. And this project has this, it's sort of the notion that well, whatever. I'll, I'll, the notion that there is simultaneously this drive to kind of pay attention to the detail, to rupture the, the panorama. And, I, and in thinking through this, and I ended up with this triad, then you have the panorama perception, sensory estrangement, network participation, wanting to distinguish independently this, this desire, which I see. Like, the, there is, you know, there, in, to not try to find one single optical metaphor that captures that. Because I think there is something important in understanding. I think that like we have, the, at least I've found this in myself, you have this reticence, like especially, you know, post-structuralism, post-modernist theory, like we've almost been trained to kind of like 
hate the totality. You know, it's like there is like the view of you know it's impossible. It's all these things. There's all these problems with it. I also think it's very real, and it constantly it continues to exist. I mean, something, and I guess it's to like even like so Google Earth. You know, this is still it's a it's a manifestation of this panoramic desire, and there's a way in which you can use that and these elements of it that undermine that and fragment it. But I think there's something independently of parsing it out that's useful. Yeah. Is this meant to be experienced from a, a static photograph, or when people are like, um, the colors of Berlin? Yeah. Um, so it's meant to be experienced. I mean, in the context of the gallery setting, so people moving through, and it's worth describing, I guess, in that sense. So in terms of the actual organization, and this is, you know, when it, in, in database-driven practices, it's always sort of like defining that structure, that structure that you hope can become generative, and then thinking about how one actually organizes in different ways that material that does arise. So the exhibition, there could have been different ways of organizing this. You know, you do imagine, like, somebody walks into the space, people tend to, you know, you can see in that upper left, there's like, the name, people probably kind of gravitate there. There is sort of a beginning, you know, it, although it is spatialized, there is sort of a beginning and an end to how people experience this. And so we were interested in sort of resisting what were probably the two most immediately evident forms of organization. One would have been to organize it by color. That was sort of like to reproduce sort of the Pantone book, you know, at scale, and then you would have sort of this clear kind of gradients. So we didn't do that. The other one would be to actually to organize it geographically, so that you do start in one place and that it's sort of the, the, the things next to each other have a geographic correspondence. And the book actually is organized geographically. Our publisher insisted we had no choice. <laughs> it had to start in Mitte, like if they are gonna publish this, somebody has to see something they recognize, even if it's like hidden behind like a weird hot dog. Um, but what this is organized by is actually the distance of the, the camera or the, the recordist to the, to, the, to the object. And so what we're looking at here are all images that are quite, you can see like the, the ground, these facades, these are images that are detail shots. Um, and progressively, what starts to happen with the, is, is sort of you start to move further and further away. So that, that same sequence that I went through, sort of the view into the distance is the end and the ground is the beginning. And so it's this very embodied sense of one's relationship to the images it's recorded. Well, no, I mean, so people did, people have purchased this and walked around in different ways. I, you know, I, I, we've not, like, I didn't organize a series of tours or anything. I would have liked to. I, there's, a, there's a whole other project with, like, bus stations and, the, like, having, like, I would love to do this someday, which is to actually, like, take these, you know, you have bus stations all over, all over Berlin that, you know, we have a few of these here now in, in Boston, but that have, you know, the spaces for large posters. And so you can imagine having these blown up, the image with the colors, including the map at bus stops throughout the entire city that were kind of like points of which you would start to walk to those places. But that didn't happen. Thoughts, questions? Yeah. I just have a question about uh, intentionality behind the, the practice. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, could we look at that as a form of, of sort of 
No, that's a great, great question. Um, I guess my, I would want to argue that if, if in, like, I've been interested in arguing for this as a genre and as a form of media art practice. And so there is a level of intentionality, I would say, in that work. And in this case, what I would say is that there is the potential for the, the simple framing of that and all of that material as a form of database document. But that framing is still necessary. That data, as it just may sort of unintentionally exist out in the world, that would not qualify as sort of a work. I don't know, but that's, it's a really tough question. <laughs> yeah? And is someone like Reinhardt's Castle-like version behind this? I wish I knew. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like he'd be helpful. Yeah. That's why I was intimidated. <laughs> So I guess, so, well, maybe to, so there's the side of, and this is where this stuff always gets confusing. So there's the, like, side of independent, the sort of scholarly work and the attempted theorization of this genre. Then there's sort of, that's relationship to the practice and how I see that. Um, on, the, on the kind of theoretical side, independently, um, I guess what, you know, and that it was so quick that I moved through those different examples of panoramic perception. I think that there is certainly, like, there's ways in which this fundamentally changes, certainly, over time. Like, um, the work of Los Angeles plays itself is, is very distinct from a city symphony. But there are certain qualities that are shared. And I guess there's something, I, I, I find it useful, that historical, like that sort of extended deray, I find useful to push back against the notion of that there is sort of this like, moment where there's certain technologies invented that becomes the driver. And technology is definitely important. That's why I have an example of something that's like a CD-ROM. So it's a certain moment in technological history. And it has certain qualities that are distinct. But it is engaging and it's responding to, I think, a similar set of kind of underlying concerns. Yeah. So the, uh, the object here is yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned CD-ROM. Are these all candidates for uh, performance of the documentary? Yes. I mean, in this case, this project was only realized as a book and as an exhibition. Um, but it could certainly be other forms. I think, again, like that's one of the most, and, um, and Lev Manovich writes about this, others. I mean, one of the most defining characteristics of sort of database-driven practices is that you have this sort of foundation of material that has an intentionality in its design and articulation and relationship to itself, but it can have many, many different outputs. And I, and I guess, to me, it's, it's, it's important to not get caught up too much in trying to like, manifest in every possible form. Like, I don't feel like, a deep-seated desire to turn this into a website now that, that could 
take place. Like I think that there is a, you know, I think that we can get caught up too much at times in this type of work and trying to make it exist in sort of all possible case places. I think it's more useful. Like in this case, it really it started as just these two things. It was like the card as a print artifact that was exhibited, which then made sense to kind of reduce the number of and turn into a print book. And that I think that like intentionality around a more limited number of outputs can be very constructive for projects. So you have you know, work that is more rigorously developed for that specific format. Yeah. I think. I mean, I like, I like books. I like print artifacts. I think that you know, this was at a point in time. Yes, and there's work that I've done, and we'll you know, get to that in terms of experimenting with mobile devices and this could have existed on a mobile device in some ways. But I think that there's something, in part it's, again, it's playing with the format of the, the guidebook, which is a print format. Um, and, it, and it was very much coming out of an interest in exhibition practices, which in some ways have to be materialized. And so that's those are the main reasons I would say. Okay, and I, I actually don't have a clock anywhere. My, my screen is mirrored, so I have no idea the time. And if we don't, ten of six. Ten of six. Wow, it's like, all right. Um, so if we don't get through all this, that's also totally fine. As I said, I've never done this before. It's probably way too much material. Um, and if at a certain point people are like, I want to hear about Ziga or whatever else that you feel like you want to know about, just stop me as well. Um, but I could continue for a little bit of. Do we want? We can have a moment to return to some of this theoretical stuff and see how it lands. Um, no, this is another project. Let's skip this one in the interest of time. Um, but it's a fun one. Well, let's do it really quickly, really quickly. Um, so Media Archaeology of Boston. This was in part inspired by Tom Anderson's film. Um, and in thinking about sort of all this sedimentation, all this media representation of places, and in particular, an interest in this region as a place that has many forms of representation that have not been widely sort of discovered or kind of reflected upon. You know, there's a whole history of Los Angeles, Paris, Berlin, New York, but like every place has a really rich media history. And in Boston in particular, there's sort of an extra institution, or there's sort of this institutional history of work that is made that is outside of the traditional distribution systems. Um, so this took the format um, initially of an exhibition and is now gonna be a DVD that's gonna be released um, in a few months. But this is the introduction. So um, what that is is actually an excerpt from a 1988 documentary, Peter Donald, Willie Pat, um, that's distributed by Documentary Educational Resources. Um, and this whole project is comprised then of excerpts um, from discovered work from many different archival sources, um, some that is visual, some that is audio. Um, and I think here it's sort of playing with that, uh, the, the opportunities of appropriation um, and really thinking creatively in my, about how one can use archival material to produce new work. And so there is a voiceover there, and this is of course then playing with sort of the traditions of documentary. That is, this film itself is actually a very traditional documentary. Like there's voiceover, there's a few interviews, it's like a very traditional work. 
Um, but there is no voiceover for the media archaeology of Boston independent of the voiceovers that exist in the works themselves. There's no interpretive layer that myself or Olga are laying on this project. Um, so it started as an exhibition um, in the context of the Carpenter Center down the road of um, I think what was about 12 different media formats. So real strong interest in the, the specificity of the media um, and where we for one night basically performed these, all these different excerpts, switching between 16 millimeter, 8 millimeter, 35 millimeter, beta, VHS, um, and then digital as well. So that's kind of a, this is just a quick snapshot of some of the other material in the project, in the collection. Okay, sensory estrangement. Um, so while the panorama engages at the scale of the city as a whole, that is Berlin, Moscow, Los Angeles, Mexico City, as such, the utopia of sensory estrangement revels in the micro. This dimension of the urban database documentary seeks to foster heightened awareness and sensory experience, a response to the perceived sense of overwhelming technological development in modernity. Like the utopia of panoramic perception, the utopia of sensory estrangement has powerful links to the processes of mass urbanization in the late 19th century. This period instigated a reconfiguration of the sensorium, the historically infected forms through which humans perceived the world. One of the dominant cultural currents during the rise of modernity was the fear of technology's destruction of the human sensorium. These anxieties were widespread, but were acutely reflected in the discourse on the modern city. Completed in 1927, the same year as Walter Rutmann's Berlin, Fritz Long's film Metropolis is a classic dystopian articulation of modern fears of technology's takeover. So while this fear of technology's dehumanization was rampant, the, the transformation of perception and attention to detail via new media recording technologies has simultaneously been integral to avant-garde aesthetic theories. In particular, Viktor Shklovsky, whose bald head we see here, a lead thinker of Russian formalism, developed the concept of ostranenia, or estrangement. For Shklovsky and others, the key role of art modernity is to serve as a set of devices for dehabituating people from routines and awakening attention to details. In his 1918 essay, Art is Technique, Shklovsky writes, Art exists that one may recover the sensation of life. It exists to make one feel things, to make the stone stony. The purpose of art is to impart the sensation of things as they are perceived and not as they are known. The technique of art is to make objects unfamiliar, to make forms difficult, to increase the difficulty and length of perception, because the process of perception is an aesthetic end in itself and must be prolonged. So for Sklovsky, art is not exclusively a mode of expression, as the rom romantic ideal assumed, but instead as a tactical technique for producing new forms of understanding, corporeal and cognitive experience, through the unique capabilities of the aesthetic faculties. Estrangement, conventionally, at least this word estrangement in English, is thought to remove one from the world or from another person. To become estranged is a common phrase to describe having grown apart from a partner or close friend. In contrast, Sklovsky's concept of ostranenia emphasizes estrangement for the world. It is an explicit intentional act to extract oneself from habits for the sake of gaining new perspectives and sensory experiences. So as such, this sort of utopian dimension of artistic practice fundamentally operates via mediation, intervening in the realm of perception, that space between social context, individual consciousness, and sensorial experience, 
But paradoxically, it is precisely artistic mediation then, often via emerging media, that is imagined as an antidote to the deleterious effects of increasing mediation in society. Um, so that's sort of, I don't know, maybe gets to some of that question of the sort of the fragment, the whole, and why I've separated these out. Um, so some of the case studies that I've worked through in thinking about this, this, this sort of utopian impulse, this end of the spectrum, has been actually thinking then about um, early work and sound. Um, in part, we tend to kind of have this notion of kind of hypervisuality in modernity. Um, and I think there's a, a strong argument to be made for how sound in a certain sort of early experiments in sound recording had a strong interest in using sound itself as a means of heightening awareness, as sort of pushing back against the notion of um, exclusively sort of visual sense of the city. So this is Walter Rutmann here, um, the filmmaker who made Berlin Symphony of a Great City. And he's also um, one of the first sort of creators of montage-based radio work. So um, this is a project that he created in 1931, recorded on sound film called Weekend. So let's just listen to a little bit. Maybe we can turn the volume up a little bit. I don't know if that messes up the recording for, it's just. This is actually a 10 minute piece, um, and it's fantastic, um, I find. But. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole, that whole album of, of remixes. It's great. So, um, but I think what's interesting here so the, the material is in the same way. So, Rootman's film Berlin is in part really motivated by this idea of how you can kind of have the actual recording of the, the city as it is um, translated into kind of these aesthetic works. Um, and he was really interested in how sort of the same process, and it has a sort of same similar temporal logic. It's called weekend because it transpires over the course of a weekend. Um, but I think what's distinct, and it's sort of, it has, I guess, you know, as most of these things do, kind of, it's not exclusively sensory estrangement or panoramic perception. I would say in a way more than the Berlin film, the sonic work is really invested in the notion of sort of hapticity and embodiment and the way in which the kind of the sound itself may reawaken and open people to a different experience of the city. Um, so another kind of frame in the context of sensory estrangement that I've been thinking about is, is deep mapping um, as sort of a specific modality of the urban database documentary. Um, and so not specifically urban, um, archaeologist Michael Shank's work is focused upon landscape, a broader term that addresses both the city and the country, foregrounding the necessarily interwoven forces of natural processes and cultural production. And so deep mapping is one of, methods, is one of the methods Shanks proposes for uncovering and establishing new forms of connection between people and places. According to Shanks, the deep map attempts to record and represent the grain and patina of place through juxtapositions and interpenetrations of the historical and the contemporary, the political and the poetic, the discursive and the sensual. 
And in the context of the urban database documentary, deep mapping is then an aesthetic strategy to expose the multiplicity of details in our everyday environment. And for artists, I would argue deep mapping models a form of relational database design, the architecting of rich layerings of interconnected media and information tagged with time and place. And the fundamental aim is, the, is to foster new forms of sensory experience. Um, so this is, and this is, you know, this again, as I said, it's an experiment. This whole sort of research project is an experiment. It's weird to go from interactive media, you know, sound works, you know, 1920s films, but also sort of a literary artifact um, that I'll pass around. I didn't make this book at all, but it's just always fun to have things that are tangible. Um, so Shanks adopted the term deep map from author William Least Heat Moon in his book, his 1991 book, Prairie Earth, A Deep Map. So densely distributed over 624 pages, Prairie Earth is a collection of quotations, drawings, stories drawn from newspaper archives, personal narratives, and interviews that brings to life what might at first glance seem to be one of the most boring places in all of America, Chase County, Kansas. Almost a perfect rectangle, the county is defined by the straight lines of the 1785 National Survey. Overgrown by one of the last remaining grand expanses of tall grass, Chase County is typically a blur to, diverse, to drivers speeding along I-35 between Kansas City and Wichita, the state's two largest cities, or those flying overhead along some of the nation's most common cross-country flight paths. Recognizing that deep maps will be slow, is, is what Heat Moon says, he elected not to bypass this rectangle, a space that appears almost completely blank on standard maps. And so to create this project, to create Prairie Earth, Heat Moon adopted the figure of what he calls the scavenger, a mode of being which is also described by Michael Shanks as recycling bits of the past otherwise discarded, making them live again, finding value where there was none perceived. So over the course of four extended stays, Heat Moon accumulated more than 30 months deeply immersed within Chase County. He walked along the 403 miles of the county's gravel roads, passing many nights in his sleeping bag atop the Roniger or Bazaar Hills, and the roofless remains of old schoolhouses, and the homes of some of the 3,053 residents in the occasional motel. Throughout, he engaged in casual conversation with unemployed farmers, the county's lone barber, elderly women, employees of the area's six gas stations, an eccentric geology professor, disgruntled youth, and a local historian at the single public library, recording all of these people's stories. So as he had this giant database, is what I'm you know, arguing that in a sense this is, he was confronted with the challenge of how to represent such a heterogeneous collection of knowledge and experience. And he writes, I arrived at this question. Should I just gather up items like creek pebbles into a bag and let them tumble into their own pattern? That I really want the reality of randomness? Answer, only if it would yield a landscape with figures, one that would enroll like a Chinese scroll painting or a bison skin drawing where both beginnings and ends of an event are present. The least he hoped for was a topographic map made up of words that when read would inspire a journey through the region's many miles. So as he continued to struggle through this kind of organizational challenge, and I, again, this is in terms of kind of the, the, the media art practice side of this, is always the challenge is sort of how do you make decisions about how you organize in a meaningful way these collections of information in media. So as he continued to confront this challenge in an extent of writing in his apartment, 
He covered the floor with 25 large-scale US geological survey maps that included his landscape of inquiry. Each map was so detailed that barns and houses and windmills appear, these USGS maps. I'm sure some of you have seen them. And together, these maps formed a 42-square-foot paper land. And as Heat Moon traversed across this cartographic territory in his own apartment, he recognized a shape that might form a framework for articulating his research. Recounting this revelatory moment, he writes, while 13 of the maps contain only narrow strips of chase, the central 12 hold almost all of it. And their outlines form a kind of grid, such as an archaeologist lays over ground he will excavate. Wasn't I a kind of digger of shards? Maybe a grid was the answer. Arbitrary quadrangles that have nothing inherently to do with the land, little to do with history, and not much to do with my details. With this new form in mind, Heat would revisit Chase County, walking across it grid by topographic grid, dig digging, sifting, sorting, assembling shards, his arbitrary course that of a Japanese reading a book, up, down, right, to left. So he took this series of gridded maps to then structure his, his approach to walking through the region. And so this grid became the organizing principle for constructing a montage of thousands of fragments, much like the alphabetical ordering offered by the dictionary in Benjamin's Arcades project, or ABCDFA. So while not computerized, the grid is, in effect, the outermost cell of Heat Moon's database design. It is a structural logic that becomes generative. And in this case, it's really focused on drawing attention and heightening awareness of the experience of this place. Um, so I have this whole other section that's about this book, but I, I kind of feel like we need to move on as well to some other stuff. Um, um, so what I want to do, let's see what's next, is oh, there's a Center for Land Use Interpretation. <laughs> um, this is all my sort of thinking about century stream, but this is a website of land use database. Um, I'm going to skip through these. Um, blank plaques, danger. This is a contemporary, you know, again. <laughs> I do love that one. <laughs> This is, this, is the, this is in the sentiments collection. Um, but this is, this is a web-based collection of an archive of, of recordings from across the American landscape. Um, and they're creating an American land museum. This is really to get to the like, point of what maybe the colors of Berlin could have been if it had been done in a different way. This is Cluey having the notion of the everywhere being a museum, of course, with a certain framing. Um, so that's the sensory estrangement piece, this notion of the kind of simultaneous desire that we've seen in panoramic perception for this overview, this kind of sense of the whole, but this and this fear then of technology's destruction of our ability to sense, but then using mediation, technological mediation itself, to try to overcome that and to try to use mediation to heighten awareness. Um, which brings me to a project that I myself worked on trying to navigate these questions. Um, so Yellow Arrow which is a project that was created um, in 2004. It's before Google Maps, before Flickr, before social media and such. Um, another prop. <laughs> Maybe I'll go around a different way this time. Here. Um, so the project's built around stickers, um, stickers that are like that sticker there. Um, each one has a unique alphanumeric code on it and a telephone number. Um, and the way that it worked is that people got these stickers off of a website. They could place them anywhere in the 
where they had a little message to share. They could send a text with the code and their message to the number. When somebody else saw it, they could send the code to the number and get the original message back. Um, and this project came at a time, and I think this is, I actually think this is changing. This was at a time in 2004 where we were, you know, this was Google Earth had only recently sort of been offered as sort of a desktop service. This is still coming on the heels of kind of enthusiasm for um, virtual reality. Second Life is sort of having an ascendance. Um, I think that the notion that people tended to have when thinking about how media related to space was to try to use media to kind of have the virtual be above the physical. It's how, do you, how can we use media to, 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 to reproduce the experience of being in a physical place? Very simply, it's like, how do we transform this and use it in that way? Um, and I and my colleagues were really interested in sort of inverting this hierarchy. How can we put the physical first while still having it connected to digital information? And that's really why, um, even though at the time, you know, we could have, there was, you know, we could have had, we didn't have to have a sticker. We could have done this exclusively through like GPS coordinates and things like that. Today, it's of course completely possible with um, an iPhone and other devices to do this without a material piece. But it was so important in our minds in terms of the intentional design that there was this real material artifact, that there was this moment where you had the meeting of the database of that sort of unique identifier, like that alphanumeric code is that moment of the database that it gets translated into a physical piece that then turns a specific point in the city into an entry into this database. Um, so it was adopted in a lot of places and used for different things, sort of a tool for giving voice to the many untold everyday stories of the city. This is sort of the notion of making this sort of invisible, not, not visible, I thought it was great earlier this week, Catherine D'Ignazio who teaches here, she talked about, you know, it's not about maps, it's not about making the invisible visible, it's about making the invisible felt. Um, and in a sense, there was a, the use of the arrow to kind of try to stimulate that, that awareness and feeling for the environment. Um, playful prompts to action. Um, this is really one of my favorites. As you can all tell, I, I kind of love sound. Um, I get that from my partner, Kara, who's a sound artist and uh, radio producer. Um, but this is in Times Square which is, of course, an extraordinarily visual environment. Um, and this era was placed with just this very simple message, stand facing this era and you'll hear the best urban symphony of your life. And another piece here, and in terms of kind of the, the more kind of media or practice side of this, was really thinking about the text messaging as a, as a unique medium. Um, you know, there was the possibility to have video, to have images, all this kind of other richer media. But I think one of the real things in this type of work, at least that I'm most interested in, is how do you get people to experience the place and not to experience their device? Um, you know, it seems kind of obvious, but if you think about a lot of the work that happens, a lot of it's about, oh my God, can't we just like have somebody like looking at this screen while they're standing at this incredible location? And by focusing on text messaging, we kind of didn't have a choice. Like you can't read 140 characters for that long. It's just. That's just a constraint. And I think enforcing constraints like that can be really, really valuable. Um, so some other examples, stimulating public discourse. Um, and as a platform for creative expression. Um, and this was a part of this. This is the first project that I worked on that was, in effect, a platform. It was an open system. Um, the Colors of Berlin, it's a database. But it's a collection of artifacts that myself and my colleagues intentionally created and that we then curated and filtered down. And it's a static work. Um, 
this was a totally open system. Um, it was something where people could get these stickers and do whatever they wanted with them, like Zoetrope in Australia. Um, it's not the most environmentally friendly act, but he had this whole idea of sending arrows out into the wild on water bottles and rivers. He did walking tours of abandoned hospitals with these arrows. Um, and that's really one of the things I love most about this type of work is actually this, in thinking about designing context for the emergence of the unexpected. When you set up these types of systems, you can have intentionality about what people might do with it. You can't totally control it, but you actually can, and I think this is, sorry, this is slightly, this is just a thought I just had, actually. I think there's something, you know, it's an open system, but it doesn't mean that people are going to do anything with it. There is intentionality with how you can design the possibilities and sort of what people would, might tend to do with it. The framing of this project as about sort of exploring cities, experimenting ways of sensing the city, tended to then inspire people to do things that we never would have thought of, but that generally fit within the sort of domain that we were interested in exploring. Because I think, And I think that that sort of in thinking about new genres of documentary, and different forms of practice, that that notion of authorship of the unexpected, which is a very you know, strange notion, I think is something to really keep in mind. Um, so that's, that's the sensory estrangement section. Thoughts, questions? Yeah. Well, maybe about, um, so what intentionality is, you know, you yeah. set that up as a premise of what yeah. makes it Framing is also really interesting yep. because it's not necessarily an authorial intent. It's, yep. it's really a framing strategy. So from that perspective, the department store is a brilliant database yep. of fantastic museum of the present, yep. but it doesn't need an authorial voice. It simply needs that perceptual frame, and then like, it transforms magically. Right. So well, I guess I'm interested in the space between those two. Right. Well, I guess the, so, so department store. So the department store as genre has a, would have a history. And in any individual store, I guess, it, you know, it's, it's, you know I, there is a certain form of authorship, I would say, in the design of something such as an apart, a department store. The intent, like the artifacts themselves might not have that, like there's that other layer. And I guess it's, I mean, I, th I guess it's that, it's really being interested in that level, like that there is a form of authorship for a structure. And I think it's something we have a hard time ascribing authorship to. Um, it might be multiple authorship. It's changing. There's notion. There's you know. There's markets. There's power dynamics. There's all these other forms that go into play. Right, but it has to do with the visibility. That this, the, the estrangement and mm -hmm. therefore the visibility. So if you go into like buy a new pair of pants, certainly there's a logic. And, yeah, yeah. And, and someone really thought hard about yeah. Levi's, but that's not what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about yeah, going yeah. in there and sort of being yeah. amazed at the right. Email. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So, and that's what not really described author as much as a frame. It's true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is a bit of a follow-up question about, I guess I think of it as just a point of view. Mm -hmm. It seems like a bit of a different part of your argument, but also just the, the database genre that you're yeah. describing in general. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas documentary, I see as something that I would associate more with media technologies of the 20th century and the beginning of you know, the entrance of brain as opposed to 
Yeah, yeah. No, that's really interesting. Um, and I, I actually, I quite, well, I, I quite like the idea of thinking about a database, the design of a database as designing a specific way of having a point of view that might have multiple points. But again, this kind of gets to this issue of like the authorship part of like authoring the prospect of multiplicity, but that there is intentionality and authorship in the possible multiples um, that is distinct from like the authoring of a frame within a linear documentary work. Um, I, think that's, I think that's interesting. <laughs> um, there's the multiple interpretations of that frame. I guess I would, I would, I would, I wouldn't be so, I wouldn't so easily take the idea that documentary has this kind of extra individual character to it. Because I think, I mean, um, I, I think that so much of like documentary's history is incredibly tied to personal perspective and personal recording. I do think that a lot of this work, you know, there is dim dimensions of it that, that aspire to this kind of trans, kind of this collectivity, this totality, this panorama. Um, but there's so much that's not. And I think that's, and that does like that tension, I guess that like in a certain way, like in that is almost another part of that kind of dialectic of epistemology and aesthetics, where, where you have, like in, 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 in Jameson's description of realism, um, like the aesthetic is in many ways, I guess, like, like that part that refracts that sense of a, a singular, like, objective truth. Like, and that there is, and I think that that's in part what's exciting about documentary is that it has that tension built into it. And it has in part, like the word, I guess this is like, in the, the kind of diversity of work that I'm showing here, it clearly doesn't conventionally conform to definitions of documentary. But I think what it all does is it does have this consideration of recording the world, negotiating its representation, um, and, make, and, and drawing out that tension. Um, and I think that one of the key tensions is that relationship between the individual and their sort of perspective on the world, and the recording of that, and the representation of that in some sort of truthful, trans sort of individual sense. How are we doing on time? What's the 20 after, okay. Um, so that was 30 minutes, all right. Um, so this last, this, last, this last utopia is the one, in terms of my own research and writing, is, 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 is far less developed. So I won't be reading, and there's less um, pieces here. Um, and it's the one that probably, in terms of its kind of the, the historical dimension, is one that is, I think, a little harder, though not impossible, um, to argue as having a longer history. I mean, I think, you know, you made a great point two days ago about the way in which Kino, uh, the, the Kinooks and Ziga Bertov and the, that work was thinking about having workers record collaboratively and kind of have this networked sense of participating and capturing the life of the Soviet Union. Um, but I think there's interesting ways in which this work, uh, Chronicle of a Day by Jean Rouche, um, is experimenting with a form of participation and sort of a mode of direct cinema that is, has a way of thinking about opening up forms of participation. Um, and I think happenings, um, this is Alan Capro, um, also in the 60s, have a really significant place in this where sort of the, the, the kind of sense of 
people's presence and participation in the shaping of an uncertain work. Um, and that it is, goes, and there's an intentionality around the notion of multiplicities of authors in that moment of experience and work. Um, and then we certainly have network participation in much of the work that we're familiar with and that's rising around us today. Works like 18 Days in Egypt, um, a collaborative documentary about the uh, Egyptian revolution. Um, works like High Rise that capture the lives of you know, people living in high rises all around the world. Um, so this is, in, in my mind, no doubt, like a utopia that exists in a very fundamental way today. And I think, oh wait, I actually do have some meaningful writing about this. Um, I think the real, the, the utopian piece here is actually that through the massive mobilization of heterogeneous and interconnected voices, you might get a more truthful image. You might get a more truthful representation of the world. That's, to me, what is actually latent. That's sort of the, that's the utopian impulse. And it's, and it's part, again, of sort of, I think, the kind of mass like ideology. It's sort of a part of modernity's sense of trying to come to terms with this sort of scale um, of whether it's cities and whether it's other forms of collectivity, in a sense that there is the possibility of a certain truthfulness that comes through the multiplicity of many, many individual perspectives. Um, and I certainly then have practiced this myself. Um, so this is uh, an example of a project that is in very many ways experimenting with network participation around multiplicities of heterogeneous voices. Um, so this is a project that was created in 2008. Um, it was a time of our last presidential election. We heard these two individuals and others talking a lot about Main Street versus Wall Street. Um, and in thinking with my, my collaborators on this project, we started to think about Main Street not just being some sort of generic kind of abstract place. You know, when you hear politicians talk about Main Street, they're really evoking, I think, very intentionally actually, sort of a picture of a certain type of person. It's primarily, it's male, it's white, it's aging, middle-aged, probably just about unemployed. Um, and it's a very specific place that's being evoked. It's probably like a small town, somewhat crumbling facades in the Midwest. And it occurred to us that this is, A, not a very accurate representation of the diversity of the American experience, and B, that there actually are literally places that are named Main Street. And what would it look like to create a collaborative documentary that attempts to document every single street named Main Street in the country? So this is a little video that introduces the project. So this project did also take inspiration from previous um, 
forms of documentary art practice. I mean, looking at the Americans, uh, Robert Frank's uh, very famous work documenting the country at the point in time in the 1950s. Rocker Evans's work, um, people that were traveling, photographers around the country, sort of recording the experience of everyday Americans. Um, and so we took a similar approach to start this project. We traveled 14,000 miles all around the United States, stopping at hundreds of main streets. And so some of these might correspond to what we might imagine. Some many single family homes. So many buildings that were boarded up. Vegetation taking over. Many main streets that didn't have buildings at all. Fields, this is Highwood, Montana. It's by far Dayton, Washington, one of my favorites. Um, this is in South Dakota. This is in Mobile, Alabama. Um, colors. So really, in this case, very much using the permission of this database structure to allow for ourselves to explore the country in a different way and to record images in a very um, specific form and allow ourselves the flexibility to record faces and the actual people at these places as well. Um, in the way that this material came together, there was also a broadcast series um, on NPR of three um, sort of longer form investigative documentaries was in through a website. Um, and this is, uh, let me pull this up then. Now I have a clock, so now I know what time it is. Um, let's see. All right, so, so here's what the website looks like. Um, why is that not? Oh, there we go. Um, and so you have the ability, you can see the most recent contributions. Um, it's remarkable. This is similar to Yellow Air in that it was a project that we set up, had no idea how this would work and if people would contribute. There continues to be people that contribute um, almost you know, over three years later. This, uh, this person's a photograph that was recently uploaded, um, but it's actually recorded on November 7th. Um, but these pictures keep coming in. We haven't touched the site for three years, and it continues to evolve and change, all in part because of this sort of frame, this structure that was set up around it. Um, it seamlessly moves through photos and videos. These come from multiple sources. So these, as, I, as I'm showing you here, this media is brought in from Flickr's API. It's one of the things we thought about when designing this project, and this is sort of the transition point to Ziga and, and this project. Um, is that we have so many sites now online, or at least a few especially, that are really great at hosting different forms of media. Um, Flickr is a great place to share photos, YouTube, video, et cetera. It didn't make any sense in our mind to try to reproduce a site that would allow people to upload photographs, upload video, upload sound, have a new account where you could do all of those things. Came much more interested in how do we sort of recontextualize and draw on these many existing communities and sources. And so to contribute to the project, people simply put a photo into the group on Flickr, tag it with the city and state, and then we automatically incorporate that into the Mapping Main Street website. Um, and the same goes for videos on Vimeo. Um, and there's different ways of viewing this collection. So I think in terms of a database and, and sort of mapping strategies, one of the things that I think that is really important today is to try to use Google Maps as little as you possibly can. <laughs> um, there's a little bit of Google Maps in the site, but they're like, we're at a point where they're deadening in terms of aesthetics. Like we see them and we turn off, at least I do. Um, 
I think it's really important to then, you know, to, under, to think about these things in designing works um, as, as aesthetic qualities. And so this is a geographic representation here of all the media in North Dakota, but it's organized as a path. So playing with the forms of visualization, making the media sort of the centerpiece as opposed to a map-based navigation. Um, and then giving the option to also browse um, thematically. So now we're looking at all the media that is tagged with animals um, within the collection. And another thing in terms of user experience design was thinking about not giving people too many options. One of the things that people often do to, in sites that have many, many different, you know, large databases of different media types is like, yo, I want to be able to just view images. I want to be able to just view videos. You know, give people tons and tons of choices to filter. And there's reasons for that in some cases, but we became really interested in kind of having this single integrated media player that seamlessly moves between images and video and sound to just try to focus on the media itself and to try to let it be a site as a whole that plays. It's not something where you yourself have to interact all the time to experience it. It's able to kind of play in a way that a video can play. Um, and that the visualization and the, and the media itself move in tandem. Um, questions, thoughts? Yeah. So one thing this project makes me think is that, so you were saying earlier that part of the genre is that it has to talk about looking at functionality. Yeah. But actually in this case you're using existing databases mm -hmm. that don't have that intentionality. Yeah. And really what it's about is aggregating, framing, interpreting. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. So I, I would say a couple of things. One, I mean, I think that like set, framing is, is highly intentional. So I wouldn't take away intentionality from that. Right, that's different from it's, it's, it, it's different, so there's intentionality at different, and I think what's, so there's different form, there's different moments of intentionality. So somebody might not have intentionally placed a photograph on Flickr to have it be framed as a part of of you know a representation and critique of the of, of Main Street in the United States, but there is the intentionality then in sort of the drawing in of that item into this frame and the intentionality of the design of that frame as a whole, and that's I guess it's again it's like I think that there's so much discussion today around sort of these types of kind of collaborative participatory projects where you always hear like anybody can make anybody can make a video you know everybody now is a filmmaker you know anybody can do all of these things. Um, and that now it's sort of all about just curation, aggregation, you know, everybody's just making stuff. And I, the, the real problem I have with that is it totally undermines and totally overlooks all the important roles in which intentional authorship is taking place. It's just not always at the level of that initial recording. Like this frame is, you know, the amount of time and energy and thought that went into this was enormous. And it has all these biases and mistakes, all the qualities that you could critique in the same way that you could critique, you know, a painting. And I think that's really crucial. And so to, it, that's sort of, and I, and I guess this is, to step back for a minute, where I find myself as, an, as a practicing artist, where this sort of historical and theoretical work becomes useful, is it allowed, like, it helps me a lot to be able to look and think about these things critically, independent of, like, how does one make use of Twitter in an interesting way today? <laughs> it helps to think about, you know, what is underlying this, these sets of questions? Like, 
there's a sense in which we feel like there's so much information out there that we want to try to like have so many voices to try to bring together some sense of a true representation. And like to understand that I myself, I guess it's a lot of like I, you know, and there's plenty of questions I'm sure that will come up here around this sort of scholarly merits in a sense of this method. But these are these three utopian desires are ones that I very much as an artist experience. Um, whether it's true that this has been something that has been experienced by many artists over the course of the, you know, the last 150 years is a question, but I, th I think there's some cases for it. But I think that that's really what I've seen myself, and it's really useful as a practicing artist to see those as some of the desires that are responding to tensions as opposed to just getting caught up in what the technologies are and what they can do. Yeah. It's a really interesting question. So the um, so two things. One of the so the first what I didn't play here was that the first um, major investigative piece that we did um, was about Main Street in Chattanooga. Back in May, producers Kara Oler and Ann Hepperman, along with economist James Burns and media artist Jesse Shapins, packed into a 1996 Subaru station wagon and a 12,000 mile journey across the country. Along the way, they stopped at hundreds of streets named Main Street. We'll get to the point soon. <laughs> I can't fast forward, and all like the limited interactions means that I. Okay. A small portion of Chattanooga's main street has been revitalized with galleries, upscale restaurants, fancy sandwich shops, but some of the main street there remains a prostitution strip. Brother Ron Fender. So. So the first story was about, in you know very you know, intentionally provocative, something that very much does not correspond to the Disneyland uh, Main Street. Um, and this actually evoked um, a lot of really interesting commentary within the comments on NPR's website, and many of which were that said, you know, this is not Main Street. You know, Main Street is, you know, 20 blocks up t uptown where we've been investing all this money, we have this great, you know, riverfront and all of these things. You know, that's not. This is not our main street, and how could we let this represent um, Chattanooga? And I think what was, what is interesting to see then is that the way in which this became, this like the term itself, because of its political kind of charge, something that inspired this kind of controversy. And I, I, like in other words, a, prod, a a piece like this, you know, I thought it was well produced audio work, and it's there's interesting narrative. It's well made. Um, I think it would have had far less dialogue if it was sort of about um, a street where there was prostitution and a couple that had met on that street. The fact that it was put into this frame turned it into a very different type of tension. And the other thing I was going to say is that this was a huge question for ourselves in designing this in terms of knowing that we were dealing with one, a topic that at this time was also certainly, you know, as we ended up launching in 2009, that recession was like in full, you know, gear. And there was some pressure to kind of give this that, like, character, like that this was, you know, documenting the recession in the United States. 
we were interested in trying, for better or worse, to do something that had a little bit of a distance so that it could have kind of an ongoing open-endedness. So now this project doesn't feel dated. Like people can continue to contribute. It has, it's, you know, in effect, the framing is flexible enough that it can, that it can continue to change. And that's the risk, you know, it's just a choice. The risk of giving something too much of an overt political frame that's tied into a very specific news moment is that it becomes tied just to that. Yeah. 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 No, it's a great question. And so maybe I'll take one moment just because I see time is also running short. And I, I don't recognize all of your faces. And maybe some of you haven't seen me give a little presentation of Ziga before. So I could give just a few, just a really quick demo of, of the existing prototype. And I think this in part gets to some of the, your questions about audience and such. Um, so, so this project, um, Ziga, the name is inspired by Ziga Virtov. Um, um, creator of Man with a Movie Camera and other fantastic works. Um, and let me go here and take the risk of doing a live demo. Um, my inability to use my pause button. So, um, so this is still um, in an alpha stage. But the way that the, the tool works right now is that you have a bookmarklet like this. Whoopsies. Um, so you can drag this bookmarklet. What am I doing? So as I said, the live demo risk, it's so real. It's so real. What's wrong? Um, let's try another window. Let's see. Um, let's just try it one more time. Um, believe me, you can drag bookmarklets to your browser bar in, uh, in Safari. I think, my, I think it might also be, just be tired. Um, OK, there we go. Ah. Yeah, no, the, the, the display is um, very weird. So I just had the plus sign there a second ago. Anyhow, let's try Chrome. Um, it's very bizarre. Um, actually, I think it has to do with the fact that it's on, uh, that it's on a, um, the projector. It's, what the hell? Um, so the audience is clearly people that know how to use a modern browser, <laughs> and it's maybe not myself. <laughs> um, so while, I, while I'm trying to get this to work, um, I'll talk a little bit about some of the backstory here and, and some of the motivations. So following creation of Mapping Main Street, we, were, we found that it was a project um, that inspired a lot of interest. There was a lot of interest from news organizations and journalists in creating works of a similar nature, sort of setting up a framework that would allow for participation, having an intentional structure, but also having the ability to have professional content featured. Um, we also noticed that, A, it took ourselves a lot of time and money, um, and that this type of work is something that is really difficult to do if you don't have a lot of programming experience and design teams. Um, and wanted to try to create a set of tools that would allow for, there we go, um, makers. I mean, our primary audience to start is really is makers. It's, it's filmmakers, it's journalists, um, 
And it's primarily individuals at this stage, I would say. It's sort of thinking about how do you sort of break the logjam of organ like news organizations where you have so much management structure in place where to do an interactive project requires like six months of approval processes to get somebody to spend some money on a developer. Um, what would it mean to actually give an individual journalist the ability to create a project quickly like Mapping Main Street without having to spend a ton of money and get their boss's approval? Um, so that's sort of the, the, the motivation in terms of audience then. So that bookmarklet, the reason I spent so much time trying to do that, was that's the means by which you can collect media. Um, so use this bookmarklet. This is a sound file. This is, so this can be original content of your own. This is Kara's. This is something that Kara uploaded to SoundCloud. You can add this to Zigo. Um, see, I pulled up these tabs all nicely in Safari. Um, it also works on a site like archive.org. So it's a similar principle in Mapping Main Street in that it's bringing in and allowing you to, to, to source media from across the web. Um, it could also work on Flickr. So I'm playing with the notion of traffic and such. Um, so I've, I've gone out and I've collected this different media. I come back into the Zeke environment. I see all the stuff, so now I see these are the images, the video, the sound that I just made. I can, turn, I can build these into collections, put these together like this. Now I just have those three things together. This is also a shared space. So this is media that has been added by others. So this could be a massively collaborative environment for organizing and collecting media. And this is just sort of the collection space. There's the ability then to actually author um, relationships between media. So you could take this video from archive.org I can turn, all right, this is why I didn't want to use Chrome. Um, as I said, this is still not public. Um, but um, you can combine these two. You can turn the, in, in, uh, in Safari, you'll be able to turn the volume off on, the, uh, on that. And so you have these two things play, that play back together. Oh, man. It's a very embarrassing demo. Um, lucky there's, it's being recorded, but luckily not video recording. So here. Um, so, so there we go. So you're able to see, you're able to play and preview this video here. You're able to set in and out points um, and change volume and such. And so now, what, when we play this back, um, believe me, these things do play. Um, you'd get back a full screen version that has that video um, with the, without any sound, and you have the sound from the original work. So this, at this stage, there's sort of this remixing capability. Um, but the, the, the bigger picture is that you have the ability to design and set up structures. Similar to Mapping Main Street, you could define a, define a topic. You can then start to bring in feeds that are drawn in from different sources. Um, and so you do end up, and I think this is really crucial, is you end up with these two different layers, at least two different layers of authorship and intentionality than in a project. And I think. So there is the side of which that's setting up this structure, where there is, and I think, you know, maybe this goes against what a lot of people would like to think or such, but I think, I think professionals are going to be really good people at doing that. Like I think the people have thought a lot about what topics are interesting, stories and structure and frames. I think they're going to be the ones that think of a framing like 18 days in Egypt, calling it that, designing it well, narrativizing that, building the communication materials around that. I think that 
it's not the kind of man on the street that's just going to come up with that structure. That structure then is something in which many, many different people could contribute. And so you end up with two different layers of authorship. And so there is an argument here I'm making, I guess, around the level of expertise that I actually think is really important today. And I think we, this kind of ties to what we were talking about earlier. I think it's, I think it's way under-discussed. And there's a sense that sort of this is wide open field that anybody can do anything. And I guess we're building a tool right now that's focused on a certain, like growing a community of people that are creatively thinking about how to design these frameworks and structures that are then tied to broad populaces to have new forms of perspectives and stories about places and topics. And that is truly the worst demo I've ever given. <laughs> um, so we have 15 more minutes. So that's, a, that's all the, uh, I, I give up using the web. Um, so my question is just a little bit about the last third of your talk where you're yeah. talking about participatory. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Network <laughs> participation. Network yep. participation. Yeah. So um, I, I thought like I was just wondering if you could talk for a little bit about um, like oral history projects such as yeah. like StoryCorps or right. during the Great Depression, like if yeah. those were ever considered and like what the relationship between that particular genre of like production is and versus like a, what we'd consider now to be like a documentary film or. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I think, so as it, I, I would, no, that's really good. So I, I think that that's, so the, the kind of oral history genre, I think is certainly one that in a lot of ways has a longer history of having this notion of kind of having many, many voices. I think where we see, and I think it also draws out in a sense, the quality that I was just pushing on, which is that an oral history project in many cases is you know, structured around a, a kind of core organization or group of people setting up a structure. Like StoryCorps, for example, is an incredibly crafted experience. Like it is not just some random booth that people go in and spout endlessly about something. Like the amount of preparation and the framing and the communication that builds up to that moment where people enter into that booth is incredibly authored, incredibly designed. It has a sense of being sort of the multiplicity of all voices, but it's this highly, highly structured process. Um, and the final works that come out of that, the ones that actually broadcast on NPR, are incredibly edited projects as well. Um, and so actually, and, and you know, similar things go for um, WPA sort of projects as well. And I think that these sort of earlier moments, or these moments without sort of web-based crowdsourcing, do point to the kind of significant role of authorship in, the, the, in these structures of collaborative storytelling. Others? <laughs> Hi, thanks. Hey, yeah. Uh, how do you see your work as um, departing from earlier periods when people were trying to use art in order to uh, break um, uh, the habits of perception, that sort of thing, to, to break people? What's happening now that's different from what was happening in the 1890s, that sort of thing? Um, 
this is one I could also use a beer to talk about. But um, <laughs> um, I guess I think that the, and there's, again, you know, I gravitate to these notions of sort of, the, you know, there's certain things that I think are in common, and I share similar motivations and sensibilities. I think that one of the areas, I guess, that tonight is maybe even think a little bit more about is I, I feel like one of the things that's most important to sort of defamiliarize today that maybe was a, you know, didn't exist fundamentally in 1890 is the web and, and, the, and, the, and the kind of utopias that the web proclaims of like now all knowledge is possible and exists and is available to the world and people will now know everything and things will be good and better and democracy will triumph. Like the, the web has these really ingrained utopias and, and there's these real utopias built into contemporary documentary practice or interactive documentary practice around participation, collaboration, and the ways in which these things tell better, truth, more truthful stories. Um, and I certainly share an, an enthusiasm and curiosity for that, but I think that there's a real important role to be played in trying to call into question and to, and to, and to, and to um, defamiliarize the ways in which we see the web as sort of a natural process and a natural set of tools that we sort of take for granted. I guess that's one of the things I'm really interested in right now in my own work and exploring. Uh, so one of the things that you mentioned was that uh, you made this very specific design decision to um, keep things as simple as possible. Mm -hmm. um, for the for the user, mm -hmm. um, in an attempt to just make it, I guess, more usable, make the mm -hmm. navigation layer um, more transparent, so that the content was uh, the center mm -hmm. of the show. Yep. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, some of the design, some of the the ways that you thought about the trade offs mm -hmm. uh, you were making there. Um, one of the things that we often talk about is. Uh, maybe the Apple versus Android model yep. of um, openness versus yep. uh, more a, a certain type of usability, um, yep. and how you've thought about and argued and, and made decisions about that. Um, yeah, no, that's so. Um, I mean, so I was more. Well, let's see. This is a scary place to do that because we're in the process of completely redesigning this because it feels like it has too many options. But um, the. Uh, I guess the thing, so in the case of Mapping Main Street, if we switch back to that, um, that's open somewhere. Um, I think this was, it was really, I guess the, the, the number one thing here was, and, I, and there's some things I would do differently now. I would make this search box way more prominent. I would have that be in the middle and, and let this personalized experience, like one of the things that's interesting to do is to look up um, where you are or where you're from. Um, you know, shortly after this, we had this project. You guys have probably seen the Wilderness Downtown, which is, I think, a hugely successful work. Um, and it has an incredibly simple start that it allows you to enter an address. You know, I'll enter my home address. Um, that then becomes the driver for this personalized, um, uh, we'll play the film, for this personalized experience. I don't like all the pop-in windows. Look, it's not just Ziga that can't play on Chrome anymore. No, it's amazing. Chrome has automatic updates, which at times could be fantastic, but they then do things that totally break what you're making. Um, sorry, that was a distraction. Um, 
but so I would have I would have I would have made this user choice there more prominent. Um, but the real thing here, and this is now somewhat ironic because we do have a Google Map here. But the main thing was that, in terms of the design thinking for this site, was we don't want there to be a map that is how you choose where you're going to go. Like that was that was sort of the founding principle. It was like there's a way in which you could have imagined this project, and I think so many people hear the name and think it's like there's going to be a map of the United States where you see all the different main streets, you click on them, and then you see things related to them. And that like the organizing principle is the street with the like, and that you would have like a like blog like format for each individual street, all the different stories there. It was really trying to not have that. Because I actually, I, I almost never come to a map with tons of stuff on it and find it remotely compelling to click on. That's just my like, you know, you know not to, like this is a, I was just looking at this the other day. This is a project, conce like conceptually, I think is a fantastic idea. I'm really interested in sound maps and the, and the sounds of a city. Um, but here's, this is an interface, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with so many projects that have this character. Um, it's not loading, but it's a map of all these different sound icons related to New Orleans. Um, and I find it, you, never, you don't know what you're going to get. And I think it's also one of the things, so here, like, whew, I just, I have a really hard time myself finding this to be a compelling starting point. Like why, like what, what, what makes me want to click here more than this? I mean, there's the aspect of it that is personal and local. Like if you are really interested in a certain area of the city, then maybe you start investigating. But basically the design thinking was like, we don't want this. <laughs> like we know we don't want this. Um, so there is this, but then it's contextualized. This is after you've searched. So you've made that intentional choice to have it have some geographic frame that you care about. Um, and again, the other piece was then to not have, you know, there's all these different, you know, there's a lot of, there's of course not a certain above the fold today. There's so many different screen sizes, et cetera. But I do think that there is work that is much less like scrolling list-like and work that is much more like you stay in a place and experience the media in that kind of fixed frame. And that was the other core design principle was to kind of not really have scrolling so that it is sort of fixed in this place and all the things happen. So you have the constant loading in, in, this, in this same environment. I'd say those are the two number one kind of constraints. And I think, you know, in terms of design philosophies, I'm very much on the side of usability and like having things that work and are rich and, exp and, 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 and experiential. I think it's different, like where, like, you know, and so in that side, I'll take the Apple side versus the Android side. I think what's, what, and it'll be interesting as Ziga expands and we start, you know, there's a model for plugins and to be developed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how does that get, like, I do strongly believe, though, in openness and experimentation of a community. And that's something that Apple does not do well, <laughs> in my mind. Um, you know, there is a certain dimensions, but I think it's not, a, it's clearly not an open source community that there's a level of play and experimentation that can take place. Maybe just kind of a follow, but you, mm -hmm. you said earlier, you, near the end of your comments, you said, mm -hmm. so I'm going to say something controversial. And, it's, mm -hmm. and so we have these tools, and there's yeah. this utopian rhetoric. Yeah. Everyone's going to become a producer. Yeah. And they're not. Yeah. Or at least they're not necessarily good ones. And based, because you've done a lot of yeah. projects from Yellow Arrow and you know, on through, as yeah. you've shown us that have, that have offered that potential to people. Yeah. Is, it maybe, is maybe the question about different so not everyone's going to be a producer, but different people can produce than have been given the, that yeah. have made it through the sort of professional and, and mainstream media filter. What's, yeah. your, what's your experience there? Are there 
are there really interesting people popping up that we wouldn't yeah. have known about without these yeah. tools? And no, absolutely. I guess, in the, I mean, I, that has been one of the most rewarding, exciting parts of doing this work are the surprising people and narratives that have emerged that are people that are definitely outside of that structure. I guess it's the thing, my main point there is that the, like, these structures are, are, are not ones that we, I think, can imagine many, many producers to create. We can imagine in, in those structures, I think, should aim to be places that bring out voices and give, and give opportunities for people that pre in previous eras maybe have not had as much access to have their voices heard and to have them formatted and presented and framed in, in powerful ways. But I guess in that sense, it carries over legacies of the critique of traditional documentary. Um, and I guess I think that that's a really hard thing to get away from. And I, don't, and, I, and I guess I don't see that so negatively, but I think it's, it's those two levels. I guess I, I really do think there's different layers um, of participation in authorship. Uh-oh. Sorry. Um, uh, do you have a component that sort of uh, 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 includes quotations from politicians saying different things about Main Street, or have you, or do you, do you have people who are asking them, you know, what do you mean when you, because mm -hmm. it, it strikes me that you yeah. might actually get a more sophisticated answer mm -hmm. um, than, than what you, um, uh, than the sort of paraphrase that you gave earlier on, and that could help to enrich the conversation, you know, that you want to start with this. Yeah. No, that would, so that was one idea that was not developed, was to kind of build in this kind of like, like the, the comments and commentary of politicians themselves and to have that layer in this. We just didn't get to it. I think it would be really interesting. Okay, great. So, so Jesse, thanks very much. Really appreciate uh, this presentation. It's kind of walking through an amazing body of work. Thanks very much. Thank you, guys.